Hello and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is your host, John Jantz, and my guest today is Andy Kessler, the former hedge fund manager turned author who now writes primarily on technology and markets. He is the author of, I think I saw five books, but he may correct me, but we're going to talk mostly about his most recent book called Eat People and Other Unapologetic Rules for Game-Changing Entrepreneurs. So, Andy, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. So, I, a lot of times I, I like to, you know, sometimes they're obvious, but uh, other times they're not. I like to have people explain uh, the, the titles of their book because I know uh, publishers spend so much time on that. <laughs> so, uh, so where did the title Eat People come from? It doesn't sound like an altogether nice book. Well, it is a nice book. I mean, you know, the, what it is... <laughs> You know, the book is a set of rules or criteria to help entrepreneurs find the next big thing. And one of those rules, rule number seven, actually, is uh, eat people, meaning, you know, find opportunities where you can get rid of people out of uh, job functionality and, and, um, and increase productivity. So it's just one of the titles. But really, it's a dozen plus a bonus rule, dozen rules uh, for entrepreneurs to find the next big thing. So... One of the things that I think you spend a lot of time that maybe maybe we could even call it a, a an underlying theme is this idea of the fact that you know we're all entrepreneurs now. I mean that that um, whether we start a company or think we're going to start a company, the days of sort of having jobs um, maybe in the traditional sense are are over. Would you say that's accurate? Well, it's true. I mean, first of all, there are a lot of entrepreneurs. There are a lot of people starting businesses or working for someone else who's starting a business. But even inside of big companies, I've noticed there is this entrepreneurial spirit. There's, you know, whether it's Skunk Works or someone that just says, you know, what this company really needs to do is X. And management says, okay, just go ahead and do that and don't come back until it works or, or not. And with, with less of a fear of failure or fear of getting fired. And I think that's really helping uh, transform big companies instead of having them getting stepped on by all these little entrepreneurs out there outside of the company. However, I think you also talk about it. Maybe you could apply this to a, a big company, but uh, another sort of theme that I pick up from the book is this idea of, of creating disruptive companies, that the ones that, that – and maybe that goes to sort of the eating people ideas that yeah. that if there was a traditional way of doing it, uh, we ought to all be looking for the uh, non-traditional way to do it. So many companies are stuck in their ways. The status quo, you know, we'll sell you cable service for 60 to to $100 a month and you're going to pay us, you know, per minute for cell phone calls, all those kind of things. And, and um, I agree. I think there's the ability, I mean, the, the bigger the umbrella that these status quo, you know, stuck in the old way of doing things, um, uh, the bigger the umbrella is, the easier it is to come and take them out at their knees. So I think there, there can be this transformational idea and you know for an entrepreneur that's what you want right you want this big opportunity to come in and 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 have it be easy because someone else is refuses to change until it's too late well you know it's really funny how many industries i mean can you think of your own experience where you know we've just endured something because that's the way everybody did and then somebody just came along one day and said you know what we're not going to charge for that we're going to let you do it your way and all of a sudden you're like that's brilliant. Why didn't anybody else think of that? But, you know, it was so obvious. That's what every, you know, a rental car companies it would be a great example. If somebody could show me how uh, to, uh, um, you know, to change the way that that business is done. I think it's an opportunity just waiting for somebody to revolutionize. It's, it's starting with, with zip cars right, and, you know, exactly. Craigslist just saying, oh, classified ads, they really should be free. Right. You go, well, of course, and searchable. And you yes. go, of 
course it should be. And it, it completely transforms the industries that are, that are, are entrenched. Yeah. Um, one of the things, you know, as you mentioned it, uh, um, you know, this is about rules, right? So you have one through, what'd you say? 12. Yeah. Uh, so maybe we ought to just riff on a few of those, uh, because sure. I think all, all the titles I think are great sort of thought provoking anyway uh, of each chapter or of each rule. And I think that, um, you know, this is one of those kind of books where, at least is my feeling, you don't necessarily read it through uh, A to Z as much as you go, you know what, we're having an issue here, you know, I need I need this rule. Um, correct me if I'm if that's not how you uh, <laughs> intended it to be read, but I kind of feel like it's one of those kind of books. But uh, anyway, that works. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the so the first one, if it doesn't scale, it would get sale. So I mean, I, I you know, in a sense, you're saying you know you've got to have something that's scalable, or you're going to get tired of it. Yeah, yeah. And so, look, scale to me means two things. I mean, first, it's something that drops in cost over a long period of time, right? So not just this one-off, oh, we saved you 15%, but something that drops, you know, 10, 20, 30% year after year after year. That's what semiconductors did in the technology business, right? The cost per bit of memory or storage or, or megahertz of, of microprocessors, now gigahertz, you know, drop 30% a year. And, and each time it does, some new application opens up to take advantage of it. It's elasticity. It's, you know, you, instead of, if something drops 30%, you don't, sell 30% less, often you sell 20% more. So it creates this 50% bounce in, in demand. And so that's one. And, 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 but the other thing about scale is don't do things that are for 10 people or 100 people or 1,000 or even 10,000 people. Do something that can be available for a million people or 10 million people because it's the same amount of energy and intellectual property and brainwaves to create that thing and so why not do it so that tens of millions of people can take advantage of it? And that scale, that's the ability to go out as wide as you can. So, so often, you know, consultants, consultants work for a client as opposed to, you know, uh, someone that's coming up with new business processes and a piece of software that implements it that can be sold to tens of millions of, of workers out there. And, and, you know, the software scales and the consultant doesn't. So I always, I mean, it's rule number one for me because every time I look at an investment or a job opportunity or someone asks me, hey, what do you think about such and such? The first thing I do is, does this scale? Right. Well, and, and I think scale, let, let me put a lot of my uh, listeners are small business owners. I think for a lot of people, they hear scale and they think just what you said, the tens of millions. While that might be a great number, it may be hard to wrap your head around, but, you, but you're right. I only have 40 hours a week that I can work? How can I duplicate myself three, four, five times? I think that, yep. might, that might be the same concept, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, rule, jumping into rule number three, uh, you, you, know, you talk about there are, there are markets I think people get pretty good at something. Maybe it's even in their local community. They get pretty good at providing a service for a market, uh, but you know, they pretty much tap out. And uh, uh, your, your rule here is uh, the, this idea of going horizontal. Right. So Let's think of it on a big scale first, right? Look at IBM. IBM did everything from soup to nuts or chips to dips, as it's called, right? They designed chips. They wrapped plastic around it. They wrote operating systems. They wrote applications. They sold it. They serviced it. They didn't want to give any of the profits of making and selling and operating computers up to anyone else. And uh, it worked for the longest time. They were half industry sales and 80% of profits until the, the PC came along and it was this very horizontal business. Intel did the microprocessors and 
Microsoft did the operating systems, and Lotus and others did the applications, and Compaq and Dell and whoever did the PCs. And underneath that, you had Western Digital do the hard drives, and ReadWrite do the magnetic heads. And, and so there wasn't just one company that did the whole thing, as there were these layers, these slivers of value. And you had this whole ecosystem grow. Now, it worked for a couple reasons. I mean, one is that the pace of innovation of each of those layers is different. You didn't have to wait for the slowest layer. Uh, to continue to innovate. Intel came up with, you know, <laughs> probably half a dozen versions of the Pentium while waiting for any one version of Microsoft Windows, right? And um, and 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 two is is information, you know, it doesn't really necessarily need to be exchanged between those layers. So so you can become an expert in one thing and just own the intellectual property and own that that horizontal layer and and inside of big companies one of the reasons IBM and even AT&T who was vertical in the phone business failed is it tends to be more politics of who does what and who mm -hmm. can charge what as opposed to market pricing for your products and so while IBM was selling PCs for 5000 bucks Dell and Compaq came and started selling them at 3000 and 2000 and 1000 because IBM had no idea what the market would bear. They, they just kept marking it up inside. Each individual department made a profit and the company lost money. So I think the more horizontal you get, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just go out there and find some layer of value, some layer of intellectual property and own it and sell it to people upstream and buy things downstream from you and, and you will create all sorts of wealth. Well, I think also in that, in that model, I mean, Nobody can be good at all those things, and, and the value of kind of having that plug-and-play model is that when somebody else comes up with a better solution, you just plug that in. Yeah, that's right. As long as it doesn't step on your intellectual property or your horizontal layer, and if it does, and you sort of have to question, well, am I the best at doing exactly. what I yeah. thought I was the best at doing? It's going to save you all sorts of heartache. So you spent a lot of time, and I think this is rule number five, talking about uh, pro productivity being where it's at. Right, right. Look, uh, wealth, economic wealth, only comes from productivity. And productivity is, you know, output per worker hour, how much you can do with a certain number of people. And so the way to increase productivity is to do more with less. And, and that leads to the whole eat people concept. This, you know, the way to increase productivity is to get rid of people per task, okay? So productivity is is two things. It's efficiency and it's effectiveness. You know, efficiency, you could always improve efficiency, but maybe you're not doing the things the right way. Mm -hmm. Effectiveness means you, you do it the right way. And so that lesson is so often lost. I mean, it's lost on, by companies and investors in the stock market. You constantly have to go back to productivity. Is it productive? Am I creating more output with less workers? And if it is, then keep going. Because again, one of the one of the things about this book is it really celebrates entrepreneurs and it celebrates entrepreneurs who increase living standards and create wealth. And again, wealth not only for themselves, but for society. And productivity is that society wealth created. That's how you increase living standards in an economy is via productivity. So the entrepreneur is going to get wealthy, but society gets wealthy as well. And, and that's really what, again, is celebrated in this book.
This halftime break is brought to you by Constant Contact. Constant Contact helps small businesses and nonprofits build great customer relationships with email marketing, event marketing, and online surveys. Visit them today at constantcontact.com and sign up for your free 60-day trial. So a lot of the rules uh, talk about you know finding these big ideas. Um, yeah. You know, and then I think. I think you sort of morph somewhere after or around ten, saying, "Okay, once you've found them, you know, how do you how do you really leverage them and and take your right. business to the next level?" So, uh, I found this an interesting chapter: the the idea of being a market entrepreneur and, and attacking actually political entrepreneurs. You want to explain that? Yeah, I mean, the political entrepreneurs we know them well. I mean, they're the cable companies and the mm-hmm. cell phone companies and anyone that has a government mandate. <laughs> to do their business, right? So where their business would disappear tomorrow, the stroke of a pen, if a law changed or, you know, they lost their government mandate. And maybe it's, you know, the mandate to haul garbage in your town, you know, whatever it is. But those are political entrepreneurs. They they charge uh, non-competitive price, I should say. It's non-competitive only because it's higher than what what a normal market would bear because they can, because they, they, they can get political profits as opposed to a market entrepreneur who's out there, you know, fighting with competition, improving their product, et cetera. So I tell this wonderful story <clears throat> about uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt. And, you know, he got his start um, by running uh, passenger traffic from New York to New Jersey. And you know, there was a monopoly on traffic on the Hudson River. I mean, it was uh, government mandated and there was these really high prices. And when he came in, he sort of bought or leased a, a boat and he, he started uh, running traffic from New York to New Jersey, busting the monopoly. And, and he charged such a low rate that no one else could keep up. And, and one of the things he did, which goes back to the previous discussion about how he set rates is someone says, well, how could you possibly make money at you know a dollar per passenger instead of the $4 per passenger that everyone else was charged? And it turns out that he owned both the, uh, you know, the, the, the food and beverage concession on the boat, but where he docked, he owned the bar at the <laughs> port in New Jersey, right? So, so um, that's sort of the rule number 11 is uh, zero marginal cost is you figure out how to make money upstream or downstream from where you are. But I think today there are so many opportunities. Look at international phone calls. I mean, we're doing uh, this this uh, podcast on Skype and, you know, AT&T was charging, and they still do like a buck fifty a minute for uh, calls from Europe to the U.S. If you use a calling card or use it, you know, you pick up a phone and dial it. And, you know, Skype will do it first for free if it's computer to computer. But even if you go uh, computer to phone line, it's two cents a minute or three cents a minute. And how do they do that? Well, they didn't use what the monopoly used and, and, and you know, they bypassed them. They used the internet uh, telephony and internet protocol traffic. And, and so therefore they were able to undercut the thing so far that AT&T finally had to respond and bring their prices down, um, you know, in, in some of their calling plans, you know, it's seven cents a minute and Skype is still cheaper at two cents a minute. So it's so easy for market entrepreneurs to undercut, rip down that umbrella, take the existing status quo out at their knees if you could find these political entrepreneurs that are eventually going to be toast. 
Yeah, unfortunately, the uh, it can be a daunting task just because they 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 can be pretty entrenched and uh, have and have nasty. grown <laughs> yeah, and and have grown quite the infrastructure uh, by uh, because they've been fed so well. Um, the uh, the next one I wanted to talk about was this idea of, uh, and I think this is uh, this. This may be in some ways a topic that has changed dramatically because of the Internet, but it's probably uh, historically been around. But this idea of creating your own scarcity uh, yeah. and, and obviously with a virtual pipe, you know, is, is the part probably that's that's morphed over the last few years. You want to talk about that one? Sure, sure. So, so um, you know, the our second rule is, is about wasting abundance to make up for what's scarce. And, you know, that that's what microprocessors did. They wasted transistors inside that microprocessor to make up for what is scarce, which is, you know, human brain waves or whatever else. But on the internet, there there are no scarcities. I mean, if you want to add another hard drive or you want to add another piece of broadband, I mean, I think the, the last mile can be scarce because there are political entrepreneurs who are providing it. But, you know, in that backbone, nothing is scarce. I mean, real estate is there's no such concept as real estate on the internet. People try to think that way. Oh, there's real estate on my website, et cetera. But you know, just put up another website, get another web address. You know, there's sort of infinite possibilities. However, a way to make money and uh, uh, create a, a value for your customers is this whole idea of a virtual pipe. So instead of owning a pipe, which is what traditional media owns, whether it's television stations or cable companies or or radio broadcasters or even your newspapers they own that pipe of of the newspaper and how it's delivered to you and and what's inside their page um internet companies have created a virtual pipe itunes is a classic virtual pipe it, you know anyone can do itunes but once you're in it once you have the a, a tight coupling between your iphone at one end and apple servers on the other end the itunes software is this is this virtual pipe, and so you'll pay for music and you'll pay for movies that you might have been able to do cheaper elsewhere, but you enjoy the benefits, they know about you, they, they offer suggestions, etc. Facebook is another classic uh, virtual pipe. Is, you know, by, by, you know, you're forced to use their service to keep up on what you're doing and loading photos. There's a million other ways of doing that, yet their social... Uh, graph the social network infrastructure that they put in place. You do it through them because you want to see what all your other friends are doing, and well, they're you, all in one place. You, you know, I have a great example. I cite all the time. I uh, this podcast is free. Anybody can subscribe via iTunes. I, actually, they can go to my blog and listen to it when I publish them. Uh, but I also have uh, an app. Uh, for it that costs $2.99 and hundreds of people buy the app and uh, and it's just you know it's for the yeah. the value of being able to package it or experiencing it in the way that they want right right and i think that's that's what that virtual pipe is all about and oh. and anyone can do it and you have to do it carefully and construct it so there's value added and it's productive for your customers but once you do that then the price pressure of of, of free and of zero marginal costs start to go away. In other words, you start taking advantage of that instead of constantly fighting it. And so there's a whole long, whole long chapter kind of going through examples and showing how others have set up a virtual pipe. And I think, you know, as, as you said, a lot of it, 
the early rules sort of describe, you know, how to find the right areas. And here, and the last few are sort of how to leverage it. Yeah. Well, so let's end up on the bonus uh, one, and that is uh, gets talking about money. A lot of the times people want to create a big idea, it takes lots of money. And you, I'm going to read this right out of the book. Money sloshes around the globe seeking its highest return to be a true free radical, and we haven't even express that term that you use a lot to be a true free radical be the highest return so break that one down well you know i i've uh worked on wall street for much of my career and have been a stock analyst and um, ran a hedge fund and the like and so i wanted to bring uh the idea of um return on investment and return on capital into this thinking too which is you know you can do any sort of uh opportunity or any sort of application that you want, but unless you generate a profit stream, you will not attract enough capital to implement your big idea. And so the way to attract capital, which is, you know, I I love that line so much, I use it, you know, money sloshes around (laughs) the world seeking its highest return. And so if you can show that you've got a higher return, capital will find you and allow you to build the infrastructure and hire the people. I mean, you know, Google didn't, you know, it was a, this this great success, but it still took tens of millions of dollars early on. And um, you know, Facebook, you just saw raised whatever it was a billion and a half dollars. Some of it went to investors, but a lot of it went into infrastructure to build data centers and all those kind of things. So you have to you have to set up your pricing model and you have to set up your business model, whether it's with uh, a virtual pipe or using zero marginal cost and making money upstream or downstream from that. But show investors. That over time, you may be losing money now, but over time, you can generate the highest return in the business. Maybe it's because you own that horizontal slice and you have the patents and the intellectual property protected. Bang, you're going to create the highest return and everyone's going to use it. Great. You will attract the capital to, to create your big idea, to execute your big idea. So don't ever forget, it's not, it's not a charity out there. You can put in all the you know, free time you want to implement these things, but it still takes, you know, big chunks of money to execute this. And again, so the, the concept of free radical is someone we talked about before who increases living standards and creates wealth not only for themselves, but for society. And so if you do a productive uh, uh, enterprise, um, it does take money. You're going to have to give up some equity in it potentially to uh, outside capital. But in doing so and in building your big idea, you're going to get wealthy and you're going to make society wealthier. And, you know, in a, in a somewhat selfish way, that's why I wrote this book, because I want others to help increase living standards, including my own. Awesome. Well, very straightforward, practical book, in my opinion. Some, some very great big ideas. Uh, is there a place uh, um, where you would send people if they want to learn more about the book itself or, or even uh, um, you know, get additional information? Yeah, you can go to andykessler.com, and I've got uh, – there's excerpts up and there's reviews and the like. And you know, the book is available in bookstores and Amazon and everywhere sure. else. So. All right. Well, Andy, thanks so much. Uh, um, hopefully we can we'll, – we'll bump into each other at uh, the next big uh, portfolio soiree. Yes, sounds good. <laughs> Thank right, you thanks, so much Andy. for doing this. Right. Okay. Bye.